0: Now, Genesis chapter 6 is our Old Testament reading, our sermon text here, Genesis 6. Beginning of the account of the flood. Genesis chapter 6, this is God's Word, so let's give it our full attention now. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to acute it from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is in the breath in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the Earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. And our New Testament text, Second Peter three, one through thirteen. Second Peter three one through thirteen. Beloved. I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Thanks be to God for giving us His Word. Let's pray now and ask Him to bless it to us. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is life. Apart from Your Word, we would be utterly lost and would not know You, would not know ourselves, would not know the way of salvation that You have made. So we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would take Your Word and by Your Holy Spirit's power write it on our hearts. It's not enough for the Word to remain outside of us, Lord. We need it to, to uh, conform our minds to the thinking of heaven, not the thinking of this earth. We need Your Word to retune our heart's affections, to be like the affections of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need Your Word to correct us, to be that sword which pierces to the very division of soul and spirit so that we come under the right conviction of, of, of Your truth and know, and know how to be corrected and trained and built up in righteousness. So, Lord, all this that You've promised to do by Your Word, we pray You would now continue in us even as You promised. In Jesus' name, Amen. How do you maintain faith in God, in the midst of a faithless and wicked world. How do you stay faithful? How do you persevere when all around you it seems like everyone else isn't? When everyone else is giving up? uh, When everyone else is... um, going against what you're going for, when everyone around you is mocking you, perhaps, or, or, or pushing against you for what you are saying about God and this world and, and what you believe and how you're living? It's a good question. It's a relevant question uh, for us. Um, if there's anywhere in the Bible we could go, surely one place we could go is here in Genesis 6 with the story of Noah. Because in the context here, right? Think about the the context of the story of Genesis. It starts out with this: uh, after the after man falls into sin, God makes a promise to the woman and to Adam uh, that that Eve's going to have a son and, and a descendant someday through her line will be the one who saves the world, right? The one who crushes the serpent, brings us back into the presence of God, gives us eternal life in Him. Um, so it depends on right this this woman's. Line going on and on, uh, the the godly line being upheld and sustained. Um, But already in Genesis, we've seen through several chapters that there's that there's a there's a split in the woman's descendants, right? There's Cain and Abel and Cain, who should be the godly line, right? He turns against God, he rebels against God, and then he rebels against the godly line of Abel and he kills his brother. And then, of course, God raises up Seth. Eve gives birth to Seth, and the godly line continues through him. But but Cain's line, that, that sinful line, seems to increase and to grow. And when you, by the time you get to chapter six, the godly line that that came down through Seth and then Enoch and others is all but gone. Right? It's been whittled down, pared down uh, through the pressures of a sinful world, down to the point where. Noah is literally the last righteous man on earth. Where Noah, with his family, they're it. It's the end of the line. There's no others who are following God. The world is full of violence. It's full of uh, corruption. It's full of uh, moral decay, uh, uh, sexual sin. But there in the middle of all of it is Noah. Lonely Noah with his family. Right, This little island of godliness and faithfulness in the midst of a sea of sin. And it looks like they're going to be overwhelmed. But he stays faithful. Noah stays faithful. And and how does he stay faithful? Well, he stays faithful because God is faithful, right? Um, this isn't a story about how great Noah is. It's a story about how faithful God is to his promise. It's God's faithfulness that is enabling Noah's faithfulness. It's God's uh, preserving grace at work in Noah that enables Noah to persevere in, uh, in faithfulness to him. I've heard it said that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, you probably know that term, it's the P from the acronym TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. All right? The perseverance of the saints, that every one of God's elect will indeed persevere. I've heard it said that this should be uh, perhaps renamed or given a, a subtitle of the preservation of the saints. Because it's God's grace preserving the saints that makes them able to stay the course and, and persevere. What we see here in the chapter is that it's God enabling Noah to hold on to his promises that he's given him, uh, to, to maintain faith in the midst of a faithless generation. And it's the same for us, right? It's, 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 it, we're living in a world with so many parallels to Noah's world where promised judgment is coming. Sin and its increase, right? Sin is sin is spreading, its influence is growing. How do we hold fast? Same way Noah did. By the grace of God, holding on to the promises of God. This is what we're going to unpack tonight together in Genesis chapter 6. Three headings as we work through the chapter. The first is this: A Wicked World, verses 1 through 8, a wicked world. World. The first section of chapter 6 is kind of setting the stage for what's coming, the flood uh, the narrative that's coming, by showing us just how bad it has gotten, uh, just, just how sinful, how wicked, how morally corrupt the world has become. And it starts in verses 1 through 4 in an interesting way. It shows us, first of all, the corruption that has started in the godly line. In the church, as it were, Uh, verses one to four are some of the most difficult and debated verses to interpret in Genesis. Uh, They're they're challenging verses. What do we make of this? These sons of God that are mentioned here. Um, The the, the debate centers around uh, the identity of who who are these sons of God referred to here in uh, in uh, in verse verse one. Um, there's three, there's three views I'll, I'll go over. Um, stick with me. Uh, there is some relevance to this, so, so stick with me if you can. Three views on to who these sons of God are here in verse 1. So the first view is that these are fallen angels. Sometimes in Scripture we see angelic beings referred to as sons of God. So these are, these are angels who've fallen. They're, they're, sin, uh, they're, they're in sin. They're demons. And uh, according to this view, these demons see the, son, the daughters of, of, of men and and they lust after them, and they have relations with them. It's, a, it's an ancient view in the church. It's an ancient view that comes from rabbinic Judaism as well, and um, and, and they see that the the offspring of these uh, unnatural relationships are these giants, these nephilim, these these, 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 these uh, terrible, wicked, violent, and strong uh, uh, nephilim that uh, that were so. Uh, devastating in, recorded here in Genesis chapter 6. What do we make of this view? Is this is this what this uh, passage is teaching? Well, a few problems with the view that I see. One, one is that Jesus says angels don't marry. They're not, they don't marry, they're not given in marriage. It would suggest then that they don't have the capacity to reproduce, right? Um, that, so that is one problem with the view. Another problem is that what is this chapter about? Right? What is Genesis 6, 1 through 4 setting us up for? Right? It's God's judgment, not on demons, but on the earth. Right? It's not God's judgment against uh, the, the, the spiritual realm of, the, of, of evil powers, dark powers, but it's God's judgment on wicked men in the earth. All right, so if, if, uh, if, if Genesis 6, verse 1 is referring to demons... Why would we go on to read about God's judgment against the earth when it's this sin here being described that's in part the reason for the flood? So that's one view. Um, some do hold it. I don't, I don't think it holds up under the context. The second view is this. Um, this is an interesting view. This is the view that uh, the sons of God here refers to nobles, kings, leaders, uh, heroes of the sinful line of Cain. Uh, so right there's these two lines that the scripture is that Genesis is laying out for us the line of the godly the line of the wicked and this view says that the sons of God refers to these kind of princes and leaders among the sinful line of Cain who have a lot of power and who uh, because they have this power think you know what we can do whatever we want we can take whatever women we choose and they they go against god 's created order of Marriage between one man and one woman. And they, 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 they take as many wives as they please, by force. And they then go on to claim the status of divinity for themselves, right? Deify themselves. This, again, this would, this would, I think, fit the context here, right? Because it's men sinning, and therefore it would be fitting for a judgment to fall on them for this. Uh, this would be a clear sign of man's corruption as he twists the creation uh, commands that God, is, that God has given. Um, some people take this view and they combine it with the first one and say that these men are also demon-possessed uh, as, they're, as they're doing all this. Um, I think there is some to command this view, but when you compare it with the next view, with the third view, I, I think the third view is the one that is most supported by, by the context here. So, view number three. This view is that the sons of God refers to the godly line running from Adam and Eve through Seth and then through Enoch and then up to Noah. Um, this, is, this is the line that continues faithful to the Lord, continues to worship the Lord, continues to fear the Lord and, and to seek to, to live lives pleasing to him. Um, so this view would be saying, OK, so you've got these sons of God right this this line of of men uh, who are faithful to god but then this line starts to wobble right they start to become faithless and and they 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 start they start looking at the daughters of men the the daughters of the the line of of Cain the wicked line they start intermarrying with them and 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 they 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 apostatize they lose their faith and that this you know, over over time this radically weakens the godly line they they uh they take as wives any they choose. As verse 2 says, they show no restraint. And, 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 and soon enough, the godly line has withered away uh, down to this, this single family of Noah. And I think this is the strongest view. It has a lot of support from guys like Augustine and Calvin and others through church history. But I think it's the strongest view because it really fits the context so well. The heart of the drama so far in Genesis, since chapter 4, has been these two lines, the godly line and the wicked line, which is going to prevail, which is going to, which is going to win. Um, and uh, chapter 5 actually traces Seth's line, the godly line, all the way back through Adam and refers to Adam uh, as, as the image of God and then Seth as the image of Adam. Uh, comparable language to sonship, that he would be a son of God. So I think it's fitting here that in Genesis 6-1, this whole line would be referred to as the sons of God. So we come to chapter 6 then, and under this view, it's not just the sin of the wicked line that brings about the flood. It's actually then, right, if, if this is the godly line that's morally failed, it's the sin of the godly. It's, it's the sin of those who should have been faithful But have failed and become faithless, that brings about the flood. Right? Um, It's it's really surprising, I think. Because those who should be leading. Those who should be salt and light, preserving the, the, the culture around them. Those who should be saying, you need to repent and believe in, in the promise of the Messiah. You need to follow the Lord. You need to obey your Creator and humble yourself before Him. Those who should be doing that are instead kind of leading the charge into wickedness. right? The, the, the godly line has become uh, in, in the front row of, uh, of this advance into greater and greater sin. They've become the worst of the worst. God sees this, and in verse 3 he says uh, that man gets 120 years. He sees this complete failure of the godly line. They've become just like the wicked line, even perhaps more wicked. And he says, I'm only going to give them 120 years until I judge them. This should be really sobering to us, shouldn't it? Um, that the failure of God's people comes first here in the account uh, that that the, the failure of the church, if you will, comes first. We think of Jesus' words: "Once salt has lost its saltiness, how is it to be restored?" You're the salt of the earth. You're a preservative in the earth. But once that once that preservative is lost, then the whole right the whole uh, uh, the whole uh, uh, world is 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 uh, becomes corrupted with sin. Nothing to check it. So that's how the chapter starts. The failure of the godly line, their sin, their wickedness. But then we get more. In verse 5, we see it's not just that it's this godly line that's failed, but it's the whole world now uh, that is um, full of sin and corruption. Verse, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. That is a hard verse. God, What did God create man for? He created him to know him. He created him to reflect him, right? Like the moon reflects the light of the sun. God makes man in his image to reflect the glory of his righteousness and his holiness and his purity and his character. And instead, man has become this affront to God, an offense to him, so that every single intention of man's heart now is wicked and full of sin and in rebellion against God. Uh, this reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter three. Paul says, Romans chapter three, ten to eighteen, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the condition here at the time of the flood. It's a time of heightened, unchecked sin. Uh, God sees all this. He sees all this and he is grieved by it, verse 6 says. He says that he's sorry he's made man. Uh, now, of course, God doesn't regret things. God doesn't change his mind I think, well, that was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but he's looking here right, at, at, uh, at what he's made, and he is grieved by it. The, the, the writer of Scripture is using human language to describe what God is, is uh, thinking as he looks at his creation. God is grieved. He's sorrowful just over how sinful and and perverse man has become, that he has become the opposite of everything he was made to be. So again, we take into view the wickedness and the corruption of the godly line that has failed, and then this every intention of the thoughts of man's heart everywhere, all men in the world, only evil continually. We take those two things together, and the Lord says it is time for judgment. Uh, Verse 7. He says in verse 7 that he's going to bring uh, a judgment that will destroy the whole world. This is the scene as Genesis 6 begins. This wicked world full of perversity and sin and just running full speed into more and more and more wickedness and the witness of the godly all but gone. Sound familiar? A lot like our world, isn't it? A lot lot like the experience we probably feel that uh, we see sin and corruption taking over. We see sin increasing, ever more increasing. We see the pace of depravity accelerating. And we see so much of the church losing its witness and becoming indistinguishable from the world. Right, so this is what sets up the question we're asking. How How do we be faithful when this is what's going on? Verse 8 teaches us the first lesson about how we remain faithful. And it is that it's not by our resolve or our integrity or our righteousness, but it's by the grace of God. Verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, right? these first seven verses have set up this horrible picture sin spreading, the godly line failing, violence everywhere, uh, sexual perversion all over, Uh, God's promising to judge and destroy the world, but then, like a flash of light through it all, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the grace of God, right? That's what sustains God's people in faithfulness. What does the grace of God do? That takes us to our next point. Uh, A righteous man. Verses 9 and 10. A righteous man. We get three marks of what God's grace does in Noah's life. In verse 9. Um, First, we see that by the grace of God, Noah is a just man. Or the word can be translated as a righteous man. That means that he he, he lived his life in a way that pleased God. Uh, he lived his life in an upright way. The way he treated his wife pleased God. The way he treated his children pleased God. The way he treated his neighbors pleased God. The way he did his work pleased God. Right? In all his relationships, and all his conduct, he was living a way that wasn't to his own standard and his own rules, but in submission to God and, and, and living to please God, a righteous man. This is always what God's grace does in the lives of God of his people. It works change into his people. It makes you more like himself. That's what his grace does when it's at work. It's uh, evident here in Noah's life that, that, that um, uh, Noah's desire is to please God and obey him and live a righteous life before him. And that's what God's grace should be doing in our lives as well, making us more like him. Second thing we see about what God's grace does And Noah's life is also in verse 9. The verse goes on to describe Noah as perfect in his generation. You can translate it as blameless in his generation. What does it mean to be blameless? It doesn't mean that he's without sin, of course. All men sin. But um, it, it means that he has integrity. It means that he's upright, right? That he's trying to follow the ways of the Lord and that those around him would have, would have no, no charge they could make stick against him, right? And the text highlights for us here that it's blameless in his generation, right? in his time, in his context. It's remarkable. Um, I'm sure Noah stuck out like a sore thumb in that kind of world, being as righteous as he was. It's it's highlighting the text is highlighting here that Noah is not relatively blameless, right? So the culture is here, Noah's here, but then as the culture sinks down into more sin, Noah maintains that same ratio, but he's kind of sinking down with it, right? That's often what happens with the church, I think, uh, with ourselves, probably as well. That um, sure we can do a little better in the world, but. The, 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 that gravitational pull of the, cra- the culture around us as it sinks into sin is, is, is strong. And we can kind of pat ourselves in the back when our righteousness is, is relatively better. But that's not what Noah is, how Noah is living here, right? He is living a blameless life, even though the culture is shifting more and more and sinking down around him into more and more sin. He doesn't shift a single degree. He's not measuring himself. His standard isn't, let me do a little better than the sin of the culture. His standard is, let me live the way God commands me to live, no matter what the culture around me says. Again, an example to us here of what God's grace does in Noah's life. It uh, keeps him from accommodating the sinful world around him. And brothers and sisters, um, as I said, the temptation to uh, accommodate ourselves in small ways, right, Um, but to do it, uh, right, there's the illustration of you stick the frog in the pot and you turn it up slowly enough, you won't notice and you won't jump out, right? That can happen to us. Um, To accommodate ourselves to the culture's sin um, is a strong temptation. We need to resist it and not measure ourselves according to what the culture expects of us. But always be saying, what does God's word require of me? And to commit ourselves to that. Third mark of righteous Noah comes at the end of verse 9. So first we see that he is a righteous man. Then we see that he's blameless in his generation. The third thing is this. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. These words are used of Enoch earlier in Genesis. Uh, These words will be used of Abraham later in Genesis. Noah lived his life in the presence of God. He walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He lived his life in fellowship with God, a a constant awareness that, that he was living out his days before God's face. Hebrews 11.7 describes Noah's faith here as being characterized by a reverent fear of God. This was his secret, you might say, right? The secret to how he lived that righteous life, how how he wasn't accommodating the sinful culture around him, but maintaining faithfulness to God. It's because he lived in God's presence, right? He was dominated not by the culture, but by his God. It's so easy for us to become dominated by other things. Another person or peers around us or social media, entertainment, influences in the culture. And these things can become the dominating things for us. Rather than, like Noah, being dominated by the presence of God in our lives. If you are dominated by the culture, your life will start to reflect that. But if you're dominated by God, then your life will start to reflect Him. All right, so we see a wicked world, then we see a righteous man, and now third, third point, a faithful God. Verses 11 through 22, a faithful God. God comes and He speaks directly to Noah. He tells him, judgment's coming, um, judgment like none other before, a, a really a, a judgment that's a picture of the final judgment that's coming at the end of the world. Um, God, God promises he's going to des- destroy the whole world with a flood. But he says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. It's going to be a big boat. It's going to be big enough for you and your family and two of every kind of uh, land, animal, and bird. Um, it's got to be big enough for these animals, it's got to be big enough to hold food for all these animals, and it has to be strong enough to withstand a big storm, uh, a cataclysmic world-shifting flood. Um, Get ready, Noah. It's going to be quite the adventure. Uh, He commands Noah to do this. Noah, of course, obeys him. But then in verse 18, God tells Noah um, a precious word. He says this, He's promised the flood's coming. He's called him to build this ark. But he says, Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. What's a covenant? We just talked about this in Vacation Bible School. It's a special promise God makes. God is making this promise, this solemn promise to Noah. I am going to save you. I myself, Noah, am going to make sure that I save you. I'm going to save you in two ways. I'm going to save you from the sinful world around you through this flood. And I'm also going to save you from the flood through the ark. It's a covenant of preservation. It's a covenant that God is going to be faithful to that promise He made to uphold this godly line and continue it until the Messiah comes. It's a, it's a promise that He's going to continue to preserve that Uh, that promise that He's made. That He's not going to let His promise fail. He's not going to let the Gospel fail. He's not going to let uh, sin and Satan and death win. God makes a promise to Noah. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on this promise that God makes to Noah. Noah's salvation depends on it. Noah's life depends on it. All of salvation history to come Depends on it. That God won't break this promise to know that He will guard him and keep him and be faithful to him. Then the chapter ends with telling us how Noah responds by God's grace. Verse 22 says that Noah does everything God commands him. And everything God told him, he did. Just as the Lord said. That is going to be a refrain. We'll see later on in in chapter 7 as well. Again, it says Noah did everything God commanded him. Noah's faithful, right? In the midst of this world that's so sinful and so depraved, Noah's faithful. um, It would have been hard. He's far from any body of water. He's building this massive boat. Um, He's saying that final judgment is coming. Everyone's laughing at him and, and mocking him. But he's holding on to the faithfulness of God, that covenant promise of God to him. We can describe... Noah's response to God in verse 22 like this. Noah is trusting the Lord's promise of judgment, and he's trusting the Lord's promise of preservation. Right? He's, he's trusting two things here. He's trusting that God is going to do what He said. He's going to judge the world. And through that, save Noah from this sinful world. And he's also trusting that God is going to save Noah himself. Right? He's going to preserve Noah himself. Right? The, these, these two promises. He needs both. Right, he needs to know, as the world mocks him and persecutes him for this, God will deal with this in His way, in His time. He's bringing judgment. Um, I don't need to try to bring judgment. God will do that in His time. And then the second promise, right? He believes that God is going to keep him and preserve him. and There is no cause for anxiety on his part or fear on his part as he thinks about what lies ahead. He thinks about what the world's going to be like in the flood and after the flood. He's holding on to these two promises. All right, let's, let's wrap up here. We started by asking the question, how do we maintain faith in God in the midst of a wicked world, a faithless generation? The answer to Genesis 6 is by living by faith in the covenant promises of God. Living by faith in the covenant promises of God. There's three things this means. Number one, like Noah, Trust that God will save you from the judgment that He's promised. God has promised judgment, hasn't He? Right? Um, not a flood this time, but uh, the judgment that Christ will bring when He returns, the judgment of, of fire uh, uh, that, that is coming. Um, we live in a day so much like Noah's, right? Where The promise has come, judgment will come, but in the meantime, sin is spreading and, and, and uh, 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 wickedness is, is rampant. But we hold on, right? We, we hold on to the promise God made. This is what Peter was doing in 2 Peter, which we read earlier. He's saying the same thing to the church that he wrote to. Hold on to the promise. God is going to bring judgment, but He's going to save you from that judgment. Hold on to Christ. Judgment's coming. God's going to save you. right? No, there's no one else who can. Uh, there's no one else who can save you. no other ark that can get you through the judgment that's coming. Money won't influence won't, power won't, good works won't, righteousness of your own won't, only the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the only ark that will get you through that storm. But I've provided Him, and I promise you, you, you come to Christ. You have faith in Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, and he will, he will preserve you. That's the first thing. We hold on to that promise. Yes, judgment's coming, but God has provided the ark, Jesus Christ, and we put our faith in Him, and He brings us through that. Hold on to that promise. Second thing, trust that God will save you from the present evil world through that judgment that's coming. Right? We said this of, of Noah as well, right? He, he, his hope was not only that he would be saved from the flood, but that he would actually be saved by the flood. That this sinful world that was turned so much against him uh, would be judged and that he would be saved from it all. And again, right at the final judgment, we are to be saved from God's wrath and by God's wrath, from every enemy that the church faces. What, a, what an encouragement this promise is to those facing persecution. Uh, what an encouragement to leave it in the Lord's hands to all of us when anyone slights us or mocks us. Right, we're, gonna, we're not going to we're not gonna try to bring uh, a judgment and justice. We're going to let the Lord do that in His time in His way, waiting patiently on Him. That's a promise to hold on to, to help keep you faithful as you wait for the Lord. Then the third thing, the third way that we maintain faith in God in the midst of a wicked world uh, that we see from Genesis 6 is this. Walk with God by the grace of God. Noah gives us this wonderful example here of a life lived by faith in God. This life, he's faithful, he's righteous, he's not sinless. But the grace of God has made him faithful. How does he achieve this? God does it in him. He doesn't do it. God does it in him. Uh, God, God, right, works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are his workmanship. It's because Noah walked with God that he was able to live for God and stay faithful to God, right? It's the same principle, right? If Jesus says, Abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right, abide in me so that, so that my, my my life will flow into you and give you life and strength for obedience. We imitate Christ in union with Christ. We obey God as we walk with God. So this this is kind of the heart of the matter, isn't it? Right? If we want to maintain faithfulness, we've got to walk with God. But we 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 can't put that off and say, well, I'll do that later. Right? No, this, this means. Today, I'm going to commit myself to walking closely with God and having my life dominated by the presence of God, abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, living in close fellowship with Him, not letting sin get in between me and Him, right? but going to Him when I sit and asking for forgiveness and asking for grace to change, not letting sinful habits come in, not letting lesser things, right? things that aren't necessarily sinful, uh, they, they might be good in themselves, but they distract me from Him. Right, push those out of the way. I'm going to walk with Him closely. I'm going to know what it is to know Him. But that's the root of faithfulness. Having His presence with us like that. And knowing that no matter uh, what He leads me through, He's leading me through. He's with me in this. We persevere because He preserves us. So walk walk with God. abide in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that um, it is always so relevant to us, that it is so useful for us. Lord, we confess our sin, uh, that we are quick uh, to be dominated by so many other things and not walk with you as we ought. Lord, we are quick to accommodate to the culture around us. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. And, oh, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, your sovereign Spirit, work in us, to draw us close to Yourself. Give us faith in Your promises, faith in Your covenant, faith that You will preserve all Your saints, faith that You will bring judgment in Your time, faith that You will bring us through that judgment in time. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on You. And help us to keep uh, uh, our hearts full of Your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.